Hi, everyone, and welcome to Means of Creation, a show where we are deep diving into the passion economy and the future of work and interviewing founders who are building products that help people to turn what they love to do into their source of income. I'm your host, Lee Jen, along with Nathan Bashez. And today, I'm so excited to be having this conversation with our special guest, Dan Turan, who was the co-founder and CEO of Managed by Q, a startup that provided office management services to large companies. And these services ranged from everything from office cleaning to IT support, security, supplies, and equipment repair. Dan founded the business in 2014, and it was acquired by WeWork in 2019 for about $200 million. And in particular, I've been really looking forward to this conversation with Dan because he has a ton of really unique perspectives on work, including how to incentivize and motivate workers, providing them with good jobs versus bad jobs, gig work and the, versus passion work, workers' rights, the future of the middle class, et cetera. And all of these topics are not only hyper-relevant to this show, which is all about broadening access to income and customers and broadening access to the means of creation and distribution, but it's also very timely right now because workers' rights are a hot topic of debate because of the upcoming ballot proposition in California on the classification of gig workers, Proposition 22. So we'll talk about all of that with Dan and also address why companies should provide workers with good jobs, talk about the intersection of the passion economy with the good job strategy, Dan's experiences from Managed by Q and why he built the company in a way that kind of deviated from the norm of the gig economy at the time and much more. So without further ado, hi Dan, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Dan, my first question is, I, I read an interview with you from a long time ago, wherein you talk about a book called The Good Job Strategy. And so I immediately went out to buy this book, and it basically outlines how companies can create more value counterintuitively for all of their shareholders, customers, employees, by actually investing in their workers and giving them good jobs, rather than, you know, paying them a low wage and, and providing a bad job. Well, I'd love to actually just first level set on that book and how it informed your strategy. Can you give people sort of an overview of what the good sh- job strategy entails? Sure. Yeah. So I think like to, to contextualize that book in particular, I think it's, it's helpful to take like a half step back and a lot of sort of what's happened in the workforce in this country it really centers around like cost. And so the, the good job strategy is incredibly intuitive, but somehow has become sort of counterintuitive, as you suggested. And it roughly maps back to, you know, the 1980s, major corporate restructurings. And I actually think it has to do with like the, the creation of Excel and sort of the rise of MBAs, where the only way you could actually evaluate uh, the impact of labor on your business was, was as a cost line in a spreadsheet. And so that became the number to be optimized. And the good job strategy says something different, which I think used to be intuitive, was that that's actually not a very holistic picture of the impact of of labor on your business, especially in businesses where, where labor makes up a large part of your expense. And so what the good jobs strategy says, and Zainab Tone is the author of the book. She's an operations researcher and professor at MIT and has since founded the Good Jobs Institute and works with um, some really amazing companies. But what the good job strategy basically asserts is that by combining good jobs and operational excellence, companies can outperform their peers. And she breaks down what a good job means to basic needs and higher needs. So your basic needs, uh, pay and benefits. So things like health insurance, scheduling. So people wanna have dependable schedules or, or be able to work the hours that they wanna work and not have hours assigned to them. Security and safety. So being able to have a safe work environment, knowing that you have job security, and then the ability to have upward mobility and career trajectory to feel like if you show up to work every day, there's a way for you to improve your life through that job. And then sort of the more higher needs, which maps a little bit to Maslow's hierarchy, belonging, meaningfulness, achievement, recognition, personal growth. And what she finds is that employers that, that marry good jobs with operational excellence are more successful than their peers. And so the operational excellence point is also really important. And this is why uh, I love working with Zainab over the years is she's an operations researcher. And so, you know, she would be the first to tell me that we were actually paying uh, too much for the benefits, we're too generous, or that we weren't managing the operation well enough because if you only have good jobs and you're not operationally excellent, you will run out of money and fail. 
And if you have bad jobs and you're operationally excellent, you'll have an under-engaged workforce. And so in terms of the what the operational choices and the good job strategy are, there's a few that she calls out specifically, and she really studied a lot of retail businesses and we kind of applied it in the service sector. So one major thing is to focus and simplify. So if you think about the selection at a grocery store, like Trader Joe's versus the selection in, uh, in your average grocery store, it's focused on a smaller product mix, the employees can have more expertise and that it can be trained more effectively, standardizing operations and empowering workers to make good decisions, operating with Slack, so not the software, um, the operation. <laughs> So having overcapacity for people to serve customers well, cross-training people so that if there's a customer waiting at the cash register and they're nearby cleaning a surface, they can actually run over and check them out. And really it's all about in investing in people. And if you flip back to thinking about the spreadsheet and this kind of like bleeds over into to how we thought about it at Q, if you're looking only at what you're paying labor on a monthly basis as your total cost of labor, our view was, and this was, I think the article that Adam Davidson wrote captured it, you're actually just kind of looking in the wrong places on the PNL. And so when you factor in, what does it cost you to recruit a new employee? What does it cost you to train that employee to get them productive? And what does it cost you when that person doesn't show up for work one day because they got a better job? All in like the, the bet is that you're actually spending much more money than you think you are. And so the good job strategy says, uh, you know, that puts you in sort of this vicious cycle, but you can actually end up in a virtuous cycle. And so you think about companies that, that have an amazing reputation as an employer. They've got people lining up around the corner to work for them. The people stick around forever. They gain institutional knowledge uh, and they know that they can build careers in the company. So you're actually not spending that much to acquire new workers and, and retain them. So that's sort of the, the high level snapshot. Yeah. Is, that, is that helpful? It's, it's, yes, that, that was super helpful. I, I really like the emphasis on combining, providing people with good jobs plus operational excellence. Like both okay. of those things need to be in place. And I, I thought that this book was, and the strategy was super interesting because it basically implies that there perhaps is not such a clear-cut distinction between passion work versus gig work. Mm. I often talk about passion work and the passion economy in contrast with the gig economy. And I'll often describe the gig economy as a class of work in which the worker is really fungible, interchangeable with one another. They're doing commoditized work, no one really cares who they are as long as the work gets done. The customer doesn't really care who the provider is. The employer views them as completely interchangeable. And that's that's the opposite case in the passion economy where every worker is infusing the service or the product with their own identity and every worker is completely non-fungible. But the good job strategy, I think, is really interesting because it it basically talks about how perhaps there's not such a clear-cut distinction and it's more important and, and it's possible in every type of work for there to be creativity, autonomy, upward mobility, recognition, etc. And sh she gives all of these examples of companies that have followed the good job strategy where people actually really enjoy their work, like Costco, um, I think Trader Joe's, she also mentioned in the book. And, and it's, it's very interesting because I think the common thread between the good job strategy and the passion economy is the idea of motivation and how to motivate people and make them feel uh, like what they're doing is meaningful. Right. Um, and I think diving into to the theory of motivation, I, I also often cite Daniel Pink's work and he decomposes motivation into like three separate factors, which is autonomy, the desire to be self-directed, mastery, which is the desire to get better at what we're doing all the time, and purpose, which is the desire to do something that's actually important that matters. And I think when I, when I read his work and when I read the good job strategy, I see a lot of commonalities and it all ties back to that idea of how do we motivate people? Yeah, and I think like on the, it was interesting because the, the, the conversation that you and I had a while back when we first met was the first time I'd really thought about the contrast between gig work and the passion economy. And I kind of initially had this kind of knee-jerk cynicism that doesn't end up in this kind of same bad place. Like the, the gig economy was supposed to be a panacea. I think everyone agreed it's ended up pretty bad for workers. But I think the difference is who owns the upside of, of, your, of your labor. And so, you know, if you are sort of like a, a cog in the wheel, like a, just a player in, in Adam Smith's pin factory, like, and you only do like one small thing. And it's actually the, there's another entity that owns the upside and like the goodwill and the equity value that's built by you doing a good job, then 
that's not really a good deal for the worker. And the passion economy is the extreme, right? It's like you own all the upside of your creation and that's amazing. But I think like uh, to, to your point, if you are a barista at Starbucks and like you are feel like you have upward mobility in the company or an equity holder in the company, you're not a completely fungible part of a machine. And right. it's not that you are not only compensated in like the coffee you poured that day for the coffee you poured that day. You actually have some shared upside. There's a reason to like want to do a good job basically. Yeah, totally. The thing that was so interesting to me to think through about this is how basically I think a lot of people think about whether, whether like uh, an asset is like commodified or, or a differentiated type asset where like on the one extreme, maybe you've got like a celebrity or whatever, where they've got a very unique brand and it can like Tom Hanks is the only Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks has a monopoly on Tom, Tom Hanksism, I guess. And on the other hand, you have something like oil or whatever, where it's like one barrel is exactly the same price, basically in most situations as another barrel. And I think there's this stuff in the middle that's kind of like, you know, maybe like apples are a little bit further. It's like some apples, maybe you look at the store, you're like, that one just doesn't look so good to me. But it's like on a spreadsheet, it's just like, there's a number of apples and it's like, you know, you, you can't really tell any difference. And I think there's a lot of stuff in the world that's like less truly actually commodified than we think. And people actually really care a lot more about different subtle differences in performance and experience of like the value that's created. And, and also it's highly, I think the thing about operational excellence and about providing a good job is that the context for, for these kind of things like really matters a lot. And you can actually create an environment where people are act, able to create a lot more value by like changing the system that they're working in rather than just treating it as like a fixed thing. Like, oh, it's, it's a unit, it's a worker, like whatever, it's the same thing regardless. It's well, it's actually not. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the often in my experience, like the further you get, you know, from the continuum from like sitting behind Excel to like, on the on the factory floor or like at the register your beliefs about what can be fully modeled and commoditized tend to shift pretty radically when you actually get closer to the action and i think like that's a lot of what zanep's work shows and and yeah i think it's it's an important distinction we have a tendency to want to be able to model the world into a spreadsheet and like then you actually spend time with people and you realize that like maybe that does more harm than good yeah Yeah. totally it kind of reminds me of like just the more you zoom in, the more detail you see, it typically goes, it makes something more in a certain direction than others. Like when you're estimating projects and you look at it in a really abstract way, you tend to underestimate how complex and difficult the thing will be. Cause you're, or like Google maps, when it's estimating how long it'll take to walk on a trail, doesn't have very high fidelity of like knowing exactly how the trail meanders. So it thinks that it's like a relatively straight line. It'll be fast, but it's actually not. So it's going to mm-hmm. be longer. I think it's kind of like that with this, where it's like the more detail you can actually see the thing in, the more you realize that things are n- less commoditized than they seem. Yep. I, I sort of want to bring more vividness to this whole good job strategy. And I wanted to read um, a passage from this profile that Adam Davidson wrote of Managed by Q from 2016 called Managed by Q's Good Jobs Gamble. So in the beginning of the article basically profiles this man who is from a small village in Mexico who's living in New York City and he's looking for a job and he goes to this job placement firm for low-income people. And the article says the company was called Managed by Q and it was paying $12.50 an hour or more than 40% above the city's minimum wage. Even more unbelievable, the job offered full healthcare benefits and a 401k plan. And later on in the article, it says, and today, just over a year later, Later, Garcia's pay is up to fourteen fifty an hour, and a remarkable twenty one seventy five when he works overtime, which he does as often as he can. His supervisor is talking to him about a promotion that would come with a higher salary. There are even rumors of stock options. His life has been transformed almost as if he won the lottery. So I think that's such an amazing, vivid passage, and it really brings to life how Managed by Q was really antithetical to a lot of other gig economy companies at the time because you were employing people rather than classifying them as independent contractors. Can you tell us a little bit more about that decision and specifically in, you know, in retrospect, like, did it work? Like, did, did the sure. strategy actually work? So actually like a pretty funny uh, anecdote about Guillermo, who I believe you're mentioning, who's, who's pictured in the article and his brother Manny worked for us as well. Like fast forward to, he worked for us for like five, six years, five years, two years ago, he was a dreamer and, and he was one of like a dozen employees whose 
status in this country was threatened. And so I actually spent a lot of time with Guillermo because I went with him to DC and Guillermo and I sat and met with uh, Republican legislators when that whole uh, fiasco was going on, which will hopefully be behind, be behind us soon. But yeah, it was funny because he had not worked with us very long when they did the article and it ended up being a, a long relationship. So around like our decision to, to implement the good job strategy, I mean, we, when we started the company, we were just trying to like move fast, get the business up and running. And we started out working with incumbent cleaning companies uh, in New York. So they, you know, they were employing their workers. We were, you know, interfacing with management and there could be, there's a lot of different things that went wrong in the beginning. So I wouldn't put it all on, on them. But what we found was that we weren't getting sort of the service outcomes that we wanted. And that was around the time that I was thinking like, if, cause honestly, like Uber was a, a, a model for a lot of companies at the time, right? This like tech enabled services, vertical experience. And I thought like, if that's like not getting us the results that we need, what's, what could be another model to think about? And Starbucks was sort of the first that came to mind. I had read all the Howard Schultz's books and uh, was always kind of compelled by their story, their Beanstalk stock operator program. And I had a conversation with Dervila Hanley, who was the, the head of strategy at Starbucks at the time, who kind of designed a lot of their barista program. And she was the one who uh, introduced me to Zainab and like I read the book over a weekend. And basically like the, the reason that we went down that path was it was clear to me that to get the outcomes for our customers that we needed for the business to be successful, we needed to have be the best place to work for that type of worker. And so it was really about attracting and retaining and engaging talent, which is, you know, which is what they were. So that was why we started there in terms of like where it went. So we scaled the Q services business to about a thousand employees. That business was profitable. The, towards the end of the business, what we ended up doing, we had built a third-party marketplace where we worked with sort of mom and pop, small and medium-sized services companies. And we're having really good results scaling, basically providing them with the tools and software, and then coaching them on basically how to implement the same employment practices that we had at Q. And so before the sale to WeWork, we had actually transitioned large parts of the Q services business to these third-party partners. But what ended up being really beautiful about the whole thing was they were adopting all of our employment practices. So they were adopting uh, our wage rates. They were getting the same level of unemployment insurance. They had to match our benefits or else they couldn't do business with us. And so we saw that like, you know, there actually was an opportunity to, to use the demand that we'd aggregated in the level of service that we were able to provide to actually change the way the market did business, which, you know, we, we thought was a really good outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that decision to implement the good job strategy, it, it was so unique at the time because, I mean, in 2014, when you started that business, everything was trying to model itself off of Uber. There were a ton of Uber for X pitches that I got during that era. And I even recall there were some office management platforms that came to pitch that would draw a distinction between what they were doing and argue that classifying workers as contractors was more efficient than the strategy that you had taken with Q. So that came up more than once in conversations with other companies to delineate themselves and to talk about why their model was superior. Do you think that the, in terms from an economic sustainability perspective, did, did that model was that model viable? Like, did the company ever become profitable? Yeah, so we, Q Services itself was a business unit within Q. And so the services company was profitable for the last like two years of the business. And it had to be, right? Because as we spun it out to our partner companies, like those are mom and pop cleaning companies, they have to make money. And so the way that we ended up evolving the business, we were working with local small and medium businesses. And the way we thought about it was, you know, when you're working with a, company that has employees versus an independent contractor, you were effectively paying some margin to, to, for there to be management and for there to be training and for there to be all of the sort of like, you know, read down the list of good job strategy benefits. And so what we viewed it was like a, a, an evolution of our strategy was to actually work with employer firms. And so ultimately, like I would say, yes, like the strategy was successful. If we had tried to contract mm-hmm. directly with individual workers, it would have been you know, I think a complete disaster. You're trusting people to be in commercial space unattended in the middle of the night. And I, and, and frankly, for the market that we were in, as I'm sure the, the other companies you mentioned found out, there's like, there's no world in which a company like Uber, for example, would ever allow a vendor to have independent contractors in their space at night. Why? Because there's no backstop of accountability. You know, there, there's no, there's, there's nobody uh, on the hook if things go sideways. And as you can imagine, commercial services, that they do all the time. Right. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a very high stakes kind of job and there's a level of trust that's required. And even when someone just like forgets that they put something in their backpack and they brought it home at night and they're like, oh, like the thing's missing or whatever, like people do, people are... Yeah. bad about that kind of Cleaners stuff are always, always the first to be blamed uh, yeah exactly yeah i think this, this is a really good segue into talking about the current debate around worker classification and specifically the fact that you know in a month californians are going to be voting on prop 22 which is a ballot proposition that is going to create a special exemption for the app-based transportation and delivery companies like lyft uber doordash postmates etc and and to just summarize for people in the audience who aren't as familiar with it if prop 22 passes it'll allow those gig companies to continue classifying their workers as independent contractors versus employees and so it'll exempt those companies from providing benefits to drivers if you know if they were employees they would have to provide them with things like paid leave what else healthcare benefits etc but as independent contractors they wouldn't have to do that and so prop 22 is a ballot proposition that has been extremely funded to a high degree by a consortium of various companies in the gig economy to try to carve out that exemption from having to classify their workers as employees. And so, Dan, you recently wrote an editorial online in 1.0 about Prop 22 and AB5. Well, not directly about them, but it was called Unraveling Uber's Untruths, which I think sort of hints at your views on this topic. I'd love to hear you sort of summarize your perspective for the audience. And also, I would add, like, steel manning the other side where it's like, like if, if people aren't familiar with the word steel man, it's like the straw man is arguing against something that they're not saying, like a weak form of their argument, but a steel man is like the best version, the most generous interpretation of the other side. I'm just like really curious to hear, because I, I don't know tons about how, like, you know, I've heard basically that they say that it's workers prefer the flexibility is like kind of their argument. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm just really curious, like what's the best version of their argument and like, what's your perspective? Yeah, so I can like go into... I'll start at the beginning because the flexibility thing is a, is a big piece of it. Right. Yeah. Um, I would say like, so uh, just to clarify, Lee, also on your point right now, like the common law, like the ruling is they are employees. And so right. it's been a stay. They appealed it in the superior court. Uh, the judge ruled, the judge upheld it. And so what's happening, which I think is like, it's important in historical context to my knowledge. Uh, and I was just speaking to someone who was in the Obama administration, DOL, I think like to anyone's knowledge, this is like unprecedented that a company, you know, they had an unfavorable ruling, they took it to the Superior Court, they had an unfavorable ruling, and then they are now spending, you know, on the order of $200 million to put a ballot initiative together and then write the legislation. So like, this, this is like where the commas are is being done by Uber's lawyers. And that's, you know, now on the docket to be, and they're spending an insane amount of money on it. You know, organized labor is spending 10 million and they've spent 180 million to be passed as, as legislation. And so I think there's a lot of reasons like how we got here, but that's like, I would say, I think most people that kind of believe in, uh, in, in uh, the way a functioning democracy should work would say that's bad. You know, the California legislature should be writing the laws in California and not Uber and, and Instacart. So just like kind of lead with that. I would say I really didn't want to get particularly involved in this issue. And I kind of like wrote the, the op-ed begrudgingly after reading uh, Dara's op-ed the New York Times, because, you know, candidly, I felt like it was incredibly disingenuous. And I think like he is an incredibly smart person. They have incredibly smart people on their team. We hired a million former Uber people. I have a lot of close friends that are executives at Uber. And I felt like he had sort of become this figurehead of, of lying to people about what's really happening and what's and what's at stake and what's being decided. And I, I opened the, the piece with a quote from FDR that he, he said in a fireside chat the night before he signed the FLSA, and he said, beware of the executive calamity howling executive that makes $1,000 a day that's going to tell you that paying workers $11 a week is going to break the American economy. And I read that and was like, holy shit, like it is categorically happening again. And I think everyone who I've you know, spent the time to speak to has kind of like, people aren't really seeing kind of the historic moment that, that we're asked to be a part of or that Californians are asked to be a part of. So I think like in terms of the actual, you know, the argument, I think if you ask most people, like, is Uber an employer? Depends on like what, how you want to do the test. The ABC test obviously was like definitive. 
A year ago, David Weil, who ran Wage an Hour under Obama, basically said, made the made the point in, in LA Times editorial that like you would never put your kids in, in the car with these people if it wasn't an Uber. They manage the work algorithmically. They tell them where to go. They tell them how you know how to get there, and they're booted off if they don't perform. And like you know, that's what an employer does. I think like most people sort of get that. And you know, the city of San Francisco commissioned research from from uh, UC Santa Cruz. 71% uh, of drivers uh, of hours are driven by, sorry, 71% of drivers are driving more than 30 hours a week, which will qualify them for benefits. So, you know, my sense is like, I think that the, you know, part-time, you know, the mom who's got a few hours after school and is going to go do a few Uber rides, that's like a myth that's marketing. I don't think it really exists. I think they would share them. They would be much more forthcoming with the numbers if that were true. Um, and so that kind of leads into like the flexibility farce as I literally for like, it feels like a decade now, I have been talking about this, which is we have been led to believe that you have to choose between a flexible schedule and a good job. And that is not true. Actually, the FLSA says nothing about scheduling. It's an mm -hmm. operational decision made by the firm. And so we had flexible scheduling at Q uh, where you could tell us which hours you wanted to work. And obviously there's, you know, it needs to be when there's demand and there has to be, in, we had two hour increments because you know, the, the, the way that travel time worked for us, we had to favor travel time. But the, this idea that like, and this is like, this is the crux of, of sort of the, the untruth, is that when you go to a driver and say, well, do you want the, flexible, uh, the flexibility you have now, or do you want to be obligated to work a 40 hour week or have no job? That is what everyone is being told. And that's just simply not true. And it's not how it would go down. And so I think like, that sort of is at, at the, the core of it, Nathan, to your point, uh, or to your question is that uh, the flexibility piece just like is not factual. And I think like, you know, all of this is about cost, right? Like Uber has done such an incredible job on so many things, but the reality is they haven't made it, uh, made it any cheaper to live, you know, in the Bay Area. And they haven't changed the amount of time it takes for uh, a, a person to drive and pick you up and then go pick someone else up. And so at the end of the day, it's about like, what is the real hourly wage net of, you know, uh, depreciation on the vehicle, maintenance, all these things. And like, if we think as a people, which it's on the ballot, that people deserve a minimum wage, benefits, paid time off, uh, a safe work environment, the right to organize, which is important, then people have to pay more. And like, and does that mean that like some people are going to be priced out of the market for a private driver? It does, but that, but it's you know, and if we think that that's uh, a problem, then you should subsidize those rides. But to say that uh, that's a reason that we should deprive drivers of the basic protections of, of the Fair Labor Standards Act because it's gonna make the rides more expensive. That's crazy to me. So I, I can pause for a second because I could say a lot more, but. Yeah, and just to sort of elaborate on the Fair Labor Standards Act, which Dan is referring to, I think you're referring to the, the FLSA from 1938, which was a law that created the right to minimum wage overtime pay when people worked over 40 hours a week and also prohibited employment of minors in yeah. oppressive child labor. And it was passed in an environment where we had 19% unemployment. Yeah. Yep. So listening to what you're saying, I'm kind of trying to construct the trade-offs in my head because it sounds like there, there are some trade-offs. And one is there's the argument about flexibility, which is, is false for people who actually work basically full-time for Uber, like functionally full-time right now, they'll still be able, as long as Uber would, would build for it, they would still be able to have flexible time. But it sounds like maybe it wouldn't address the people who maybe want to do like, you know, five hours a week or whatever, like pick up a random shift kind of a thing like that. Those people would no longer be able to do that, or that would be harder. But then the question is actually how many of those people are there? Is So, so I think actually that's also not true. Oh, there's, interesting. Kind of, there's this myth that there's a carrying cost to having employees not true you know we had people we had maintenance staff that like would let us know when they were available and would work like a four-hour shift in a week but there's no carrying cost to having you know an employee in your, in your system you know and so can you just you know, define for, carrying costs meaning like there's i there they have stated publicly that there's a fixed cost to having employees and i would love to understand what those are but to my knowledge if there's a if there's a pay period where you're not paying an employee you know there's either no cost or de minimis cost that to actually have an employee on your books, meaning like they don't have to work every pay period. They don't have to work a minimum number of hours. You know, they can, there's some administrative overhead, sure, but it's not like if you don't work at least 10 hours a month, you're not an employee. That's again, an operational choice. Right. What about like healthcare benefits? 
that kicks in, I think, in California at 30 hours. And so oh, I think okay. actually, and the funny thing is both Uber and, and Lyft piss cash on incentives to get people to be loyal to their platforms and to drive in streaks and they gamify it. And it's like, right. what, what a beautiful incentive it would be to just say like, drive for 30 hours and you get health insurance. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> that's like why sometimes I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I actually think that they would be better businesses for all the good job strategy reasons. Like, I think Uber said they're spending a billion dollars a year on acquiring drivers. Like that's because yeah. you're offering them a bad deal. You know, it's like uh, right. Starbucks doesn't spend that on acquiring baristas. Right. Like, why don't you just focus on reducing your churn rate rather than spending so much on acquisition is like one another way to frame it. Yeah. But the, un- the unknown is scary. And I'm not like, I wouldn't make light of, you know, what, what, what that would mean for them as a business. The unknown is always scary. So I think it's natural to see them kind of frantically defending the status quo. I think like, and I just touch on this briefly, depriving this many workers of the right to organize under any circumstances, which is another perk of the FLSA, is you can form a union and, and uh, bargain collectively, combined with the fact that the Prop 22 requires seven-eighths of, of the assembly to modify it, is just like, it's so egregious to me. And I think like what will happen, because this is just like how markets work, is right now it's app drivers. And six months from now, every other employer who's paying payroll taxes and having to deal with unions is going to look and say, actually, I want, that sounds pretty good, what they have. I would like that too. And, you know, to me, it's actually, this is kind of opening up a back door to deregulate labor, which I think is unacceptable. Yeah, I think it's, I almost wish that we could run simulations with what would happen if, you know, if they had to abide by AB5 versus if Prop 22 passed, because I think there's so many different components that are in flux and so many levers that could impact what would happen. As you mentioned, these are companies that spend tons of money every year on driver incentives and and driver acquisition. And what if that money were just used to provide some of these benefits for employees instead? Potentially, you know, the mechanism of action could be that that encourages people to sign up without having to give them a huge bonus. Potentially, it leads to greater retention and less churn, so they would have to spend less on acquisition over time. Potentially, that means happier employees and more recurring usage among users. But I think their counter argument uh, against AB5 has often boiled down to classifying workers as employees would require us to pay so much more that it would make the cost of operating in California unfeasible. And, you know, if we did want to operate, we would have to consolidate hours among fewer workers, which means that many people would be without earnings at all. Like people would just not be able to drive for Uber if they wanted to, and there would just be a smaller total overall pool of workers. Yeah, um, that's also but, been the argument against every minimum wage increase in the history of the world, you know, is that like, it's gonna, mm-hmm. uh, and what's happened and the, the, the literature is, I would say fairly conclusive, a little bit mixed on this, is that, you know, it ends up growing aggregate consumption. So you're, you're put, these are people that spend their money because they don't have a lot of it. And so if you're talking about workers having a stronger safety net, putting more money in their pockets, like, I would be a hard argument to make, but I'm sure someone could make it that like their kids would be able to afford to take an Uber and that would grow their demand. So like, I, it's not one-to-one, like I'm not an economist, so I'm, I certainly haven't done the work, but I think it's sort of like, it's a pretty lazy argument to just say, well, you know, they'll, we'll be able to employ through. It's like, that's, that's looking at one very small, small piece of the puzzle. And I don't know that it's also not the, the mandate of, you know, the, the California state legislature like, what is the role of government? Like, are they, is their job to have as many Uber drivers on the road or to ensure for the optimal production function of, of you know, of California? Right. Yeah. Right. There's a line that I absolutely really like in your um, editorial piece, uh, which says, quote, did eliminating child labor increase the price of ladies' hosiery? Probably. Was it the right thing to do? Absolutely. I think that's such a great blast from the past because I think a lot of people today don't recognize that over a hundred years ago in the late 1800s during the industrial revolution, the average American worked over 12 hour days, seven day weeks, just to be able to eke out like the most basic of a living, which is very reminiscent of what a lot of these out-based drivers now have to do. And despite a lot of restrictions in some states, children as young as five or six would be sent to factories to also earn a fraction of their adult counterparts' wages. And that didn't change until 
the labor movement in America and which culminated in a lot of the legislation that we're talking about now. And today's parallels are what is happening on all of the, the platform based and work. It's the same, and it's the same, it is the same workers that FDR was trying to protect. They, they are foreign born, non-white, supporting families, low education. And I think like, you know, when you look at it through that lens, it's like, what are we doing here? These are like, these are the most vulnerable workers and, and we're going to give uh, a tech company a pass on providing them with benefits that like, you know, for whatever reason that like at one point we all agreed were, were unalienable for workers. Yeah. Right. It's not right. a new issue. It's like the last labor movement happened when the economy and society was transitioning from agricultural work to manufacturing work. And today I think we're in the midst of another major transition, which is from corporate employment and the organization man era to an era in which a lot more people are going to be finding work and earning an income from platforms. And so what does labor law look like in this next era? I think it obviously can't stay the same as it is today. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, there's, there's sort of echoes of another topic related to this, which is antitrust. The, the modern foundation of antitrust law is like, was created when there was a really new type of company that gained kind of like a monopoly on, on things like railroads or oil or steel. And now we have really different kinds of super powerful companies. And so maybe, maybe the, the way that the, the basis of competition is a little bit different now. And so the way that we think about antitrust needs to be a little bit different. And that's a whole other can of worms. But I think there's like similar, lots of things shifting together because they're all interdependent. And, and the way we think about regulation should also shift along with it based on the understanding of how it's changed. Yeah. And I think they like, they're definitely, they're not like directly related, but there's a little bit of overlap. And I think like the broader question, which I think is being asked uh, sort of uh, on the the national level right now is how do we divide up the spoils of being the the richest, most successful nation in the history of the world? And, you know, how is it the case that we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world with the wealthiest people in the history of the world? And yet 50% of Americans are born to zero or negative wealth. Like it's, you know, and so whether that's through antitrust action or through taxation or through actually paying out benefits, it's all like redistribution, right? It's like, clearly, if you just let the system run as it exists today, if you look at the returns on labor and the returns on capital and who gets educated in this country, the simulation runs itself into a really bad place where like, you know, Jeff Bezos sucks up all the money. And that's like, fine, that's like the world that people want to live in. But it feels like very counter to like kind of the foundational values of, of this country. And I get that, like, that's a lot to put on, like, you know, Dara's shoulders and be like, now you pay them. But it's like, I don't know, at a certain point, you just have to do what's right. And I feel like, you know, to bring it on home, this is like a very, very well-funded, very sort of intentional campaign to do what is so obviously wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, brought it home. <laughs> mic drop. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> what you can say after that? I actually, there, there's one other thing I'm kind of curious about this before we do audience questions, which is like, there's sort of a difference between having, if you're Uber and like, let's say this, this prop fails and they do have to abide by AB5, having to abide by it, but kind of like wanting to wriggle your way out of it versus actually adopting the good job strategy. And the theory of the good job strategy is that, well, it's a strategy. So you have to like energetically embrace it. You can't just like, it's not going to be forced upon you. So art too. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So like, if you were, if you were running Uber and you're like, you know, I want to actually run Uber in a good job, according to the good job strategy, what are some changes you might make? How, How would you expect those things could potentially pay off? Like, how would it sort of translate into a better experience for customers, maybe more revenue, able to charge a higher price or something, or is that even the right strategy for Uber? Like there's a lot of complexity there, but I'm just really curious, like how you think about that for Uber. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I feel a little bit ill-prepared because it's there are a few days when I wake up and think about what I would do if I were running Uber. Right. That's Um, fair. That's totally fair. I I do think that like the vision that has been asserted is sort of like this remote control for your life. And, you know, you see Uber increasingly get into various delivery businesses, which are also fraught and is going to be the next battlefield. But but you could imagine like your driver taking you home and being like, uh, Mr. Bashes, you had the chicken tikka masala last night. Would you like me to put in an order for you? And like, whatever, like you can have, you could have um, like the way that it works, that good job strategy works well in in retail is it it drives basket and it drives repeat purchase. So, you know, if you if you felt like that, if they're trying to, to drive cross sell, like good job strategy is like, it's highly effective for that. So that would be one thing to think about. 
The other thing, and like, I know Lee, you're invested in, in a company called Dumpling that, that's helping uh, create kind of small and medium-sized grocery businesses. We made the change at Q to work with small and medium businesses because like, I realized that one of our principles, this is like a little inside baseball, but one of our principles was to be a founder and that our operating model was basically getting too, it, it didn't actually scale and we needed founders to run their own businesses. And so we ended up scaling to uh, hundreds of local businesses that operated on our platform aligned with our values and using our, our tech to service our customers. I think that could be interesting too, you know, like allow for some entrepreneurship, which creates mobility and, and like gives people, you know, the ability to run their own business on the platform. And, you know, that, that could be something that could work in the case of Uber. So, you know, Uber wouldn't have to be the employer. They would give up some margin to a regional company that would take responsibility for their employees. Cause that's like, the, you know, that's all we're asking here at the end of the day is to have somebody uh, take responsibility for the workers. So there's different models that could work, I guess. Awesome. Anyway. All right. Should we take some questions from the audience? Let's do it. And before we do it, just a quick plug, as always, we're now doing a weekly news recap for everything that's happening in the passion economy. So if you're curious about just staying up to date with various happenings, such as Triller buying sushi dinners weekly for you know stars they're trying to lure from TikTok at <laughs> Nobu in Malibu, <laughs> which is a far cry from the topics discussed this time, uh, then, then you can learn all about that kind of stuff every week with our, with our newsletter at uh, meansofcreation.substack.com. Perfect. Awesome. Alan, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. How are you guys? Thank you uh, for the weekly shows. I absolutely love them. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just curious. So I'm from Mexico and I have a lot of friends, especially here in Miami, who do this type of gay economy works. And I'm curious about your view on the, the lack or, or trans, lack of transparent information this company give, give to their workers. So for example, I know a lot of people here when they drive Uber or, or deliver food for Instacart, they think they're earning a certain amount when in reality, when you take into account the miles you put in your car, gasoline, uh, you're earning significantly less. So just curious about your view on the information transparency between these companies and their workers. Yeah, I mean, I think like, I think it's predatory. It's been going on for a long time. There's been, you know, <laughs> there's, there's been kind of now and then people make noise about it. But I think, you know, you don't want to be uh, paternalistic and say that like people are unsophisticated and can't make good decisions. But when you are asking somebody who's like maybe doesn't have uh, a, a ton of financial literacy, isn't highly educated uh, in a conventional sense, to do the math on depreciation and maintenance costs and having a point of view on like the, the cost of gasoline and then having somebody else set their pricing. It's like, you know, and you, you hear all these horror stories of people leasing a car to drive for Uber and then their rates get cut. Like, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's, it, it's predatory. And I think that all of those problems go away when, when they're your employees, because, you know, your employer is not asking you to, to think about all of the, the cogs in whatever business you work in. Yeah, I've, I've experienced Uber and Lyft drivers asking me at the end of the ride, like, how much did the app charge you for this? Because they don't actually know how much the customer is paying. And, and sometimes they're shocked at the number and, and they realize that they're getting such a tiny cut of it. And I think it goes back to the ABC test of who is an employee and, and versus an independent contractor. And one of those components of the test is the worker is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work. And obviously in all of these app-based work platforms, they are price takers. They're not price setters. Yeah. So I think the information, lack of information transparency is it goes back to all of the issues that we were talking about. Yeah, completely agree. I appreciate the response. Thank you. Thank you. We have a question from Krishna Chatpar. How would this affect Etsy sellers? Yeah, I mean, Lee may be more qualified to take this than me, but my understanding of their business is that it wouldn't for kind of all the reasons that Lee just described, but yeah, I, I agree. I don't think Etsy would be impacted because another aspect of the ABC test, and by the way, I am definitely not the expert on this. I think you can read way more about this online. I just have a very novice level understanding. But as long as the worker is engaged in a type of work that is outside of the usual course of the hiring entity's business, then they can be classified as an independent contractor. So in Etsy's case, Etsy's usual course of business is creating this platform for anyone to sell anything. 
And obviously each seller is doing something quite different from that versus you would say, you know, Uber's business is transporting people and the drivers transport people. I'm a little, that makes some sense to me, but I'm kind of like, isn't the usual course of Etsy's business people like selling stuff on their platform? Like, it's not like selling you that knickknack is not their business. You know, it's oh, like, like, it's like that specific thing. So it's yeah, like, like, what level the, of abstraction do you find? Do you define the like value proposition at kind of? Yeah. How fungible is the, is the product or service you're receiving? And in the case of Etsy, it's like, you know, very low fungibility. Yeah. But that does bring up a good point that the ABC test obviously is open to interpretation and in gray areas. And, and I would say is flawed because it's backward looking. And so, you know, one of the points of the test is looking at how historically people have been employed in this profession. And it's like, there's never been an Uber or uh, an Instacart on the face of the earth. And so like, how would we, yeah. why would we be backwards looking in, in that type of a test? Very good point. Does anyone else have any questions? There's a good one in the Q&A from Mark. Mark asks, why don't companies like Uber fight for progressive legislation that would also help their business? Wouldn't it be better for their brand and their business if they're successfully able to push for universal health care, for example? I am with you, Mark. <laughs> uh, I mean, I honestly don't get it. You would think so. And I think like, I can give you a specific example, which is like at, at Q, we fought for paid family leave in New York state. We helped to pass it. We were recognized with the SEIU as like being a, defi- a definitive voice in it. And like, we knew that by, by all of our competitors would, would then also have to provide paid family leave and it would be a net positive for us. Now we would have to be find new frontiers to be competitive as an employer, but it like, it has the impact of raising the cost in the market, which is a, is a good thing if you're already offering this thing. So I agree. I mean, I would just, I would love to see them get out in front of this because, and this is like, uh, this isn't a novel idea, but like it says in the, in the Prop 22 legislation that if there is universal healthcare, they can drop their coverage. And so it's like, everyone's mm-hmm. thinking about this. Everyone will drop their coverage if there's universal healthcare, which is like, you know, <laughs> but somebody needs to like raise their hand and say like, yeah, like, well, let's do this because then it doesn't become, you know, it's not as scary to be an employer. Yeah. yeah. I agree. In in a way, I think both AB5 and Prop 22 are both flawed approaches to the overall issue, which is that in America, benefits are tied to employment. And yes. perhaps like the overall, like long-term, probably ideal solution to this is that, you know, it gets decoupled and the benefits get tied to the individual rather than being tied to a specific company. Totally. 100% agree. For, yeah, I, I I completely agree with that. I think the risk is in, is not solving that problem at its root. Yep. Agree. Dave Ambrose. Let's get Dave up here. Dave, how's it going? We know Dave. Dave. Hello. Hello. Happy Friday, everyone. Happy Friday. Um, Thanks for joining. This is great. This is really, this, this is really great. Um, Thank you. Dan, do you have any reading that you can point to maybe kind of after this of just like for companies of how to employ kind of good jobs? Because I know you did this really well at Q. And you spent a lot of time, I think, cultivating the culture there with the operators. I think it'd, I'd love to hear if you have any kind of resources or things that you've written as you were building Q and scaling it in New York and other cities, just for everybody yeah. else to learn from. Yeah. So, so Zainab founded the Good Jobs Institute, which has worked with like, you know, Walmart, Costco, like kind of you name it. And they're really, they're, so the Good Jobs Institute, goodjobsinstitute.org, I believe. It's run by a woman named Sarah Kalik. I'm actually working with them on a project right now. And their materials are awesome. I would say start by reading the book, The Good Job Strategy, but they have like a good job scorecard. It's super thoughtful and insightful. It's driven by an operations researcher. And so it's, you know, it's, it's really like tangible and you can tell them to reach out to me. Also like Sarah at the Good Jobs Institute is down to talk to anyone. Like they, they love spreading this gospel and they're really good at what they do. So I would, I would say, yeah, start there. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. We have, Two kind of related questions from anonymous attendee. One is, how do you see labor law differ for gig versus passion economy? And the next is, are you seeing gig and passion economy companies struggle to figure out their business models given the indecision around labor law right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I can kind of take a first stab and then, but I think Lee has thought about this as well. It has to me so much to do with like how much leverage does a worker have, you know, at the end of the day to set, to set, to one to like set pricing but two to like uh, is there any upside to their toil like if you are working at a below minimum wage for uber every single day it's not going to get better you know versus if you only have a few people reading your newsletter 
but like you're chipping away at it, you're building a brand, you own that equity, like there actually is the upside to, to have, you know, breakout success. Uh, and so I think like where worker protections are the most important is where people don't have leverage and don't own the upside of their work. And, and, and a tougher one to solve for is like, and maybe aren't necessarily making a, are, are being induced to make an irrational economic decision kind of in, in taking us a, a below market rate, which is, it's a tough, it's a tough one to solve for. I think that was the perfect answer. Honestly, I have very little to add to that. I think Dan hit it right on the head, which is that I think overall there's kind of, there's not a clear line between gig economy versus passion economy. I think in both cases, these people are often independent workers that are not tied or employed to a specific company. The difference is how commoditized is that worker? How much pricing power do they have? How much leverage do they have? And in the passion economy worker case, a lot of times they're building their own business. They get to own the entire upside of what they do. They're entirely self-employed. They're trying to create a business um, out of their own talents and skills versus in the gig economy case, because they're entirely commoditized, they're usually, they're usually price takers. As I mentioned in the Uber case, they don't get to set their own rates. They don't get to develop a lot of customer loyalty. And so they're sort of just stuck working for whatever wages the platform dictates that they take. So I think the, urgency of a lot of this legislation really it's more relevant and it's more urgent for workers in the gig economy who are working for wages that the platform set who are in a very precarious economic position totally so we're at time but i also i I just want to end with this quote that i was watching an interview last night with dan from TechCrunch disrupt from 2017 and he just had this amazing line in the interview up on stage. And he said that wealth perpetuates wealth, poverty perpetuates poverty. The middle class doesn't just happen, it's built. And I love that so much. Mm. And I think that that is extremely true. I, I just couldn't agree with that more. And so I wanted to end with that. Well, thank you so much for, for digging that up. <laughs> forgot all about that. It's <laughs> a good line. <laughs> It's It's a a really good line. Yeah, I was doing some stalking last night to prep for this. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Where can we sign up for your campaign website for when you run for president? Yeah, (laughs) not uh, not happening. (laughs) Um, But you can you can support our friend Joe Biden and make sure that we don't have another four years of of Trump. I agree with that. That's Um, a great call to action to end on. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. It's been awesome. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much, Dan, for being here with us today. This was such a great show. Have a great weekend, everyone. 